You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. Today's message comes from our series, The Trouble Is, a response to common questions and objections to Christianity. Here's Pastor Nick. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please open with me to the book of Colossians, a letter to the Colossians. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning and then jump into our study. Our text comes from Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it is trustworthy, that it is inspired by your spirit. And we pray that as we study it this morning, Lord, that you would bring clarity to maybe some areas where there has been cloudiness and some uh, answers to where we've had questions. So we pray that uh, the end result of today is that we would be drawn more in awe of you, more in worship of you, and with greater confidence in the truth of the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So right now we're in a series called The Trouble Is. Now what we usually like to do here at Whitefields, we love to study the Bible and we love to study through books of the Bible. And so we just finished a book study. We went through the entire letter to the Hebrews and then we did Easter and, and, and Palm Sunday. And now we, for six weeks we're taking a break and then when we're done with this, we're going to get into another book study. So just so you know, if this is your first time with us, this is kind of unusual for us, but we're excited about it. What we're doing is we're taking six weeks to address some of the toughest questions that people ask about Christianity, some of the biggest issues that people struggle with in regard to Christianity. In preparation for this series, we took a poll online and we had everybody we knew share it online and we got a lot of response. And the big question we asked was this, what is the biggest hurdle for you? Or what are the biggest hurdles for you in embracing Christianity and believing the gospel? And we got a ton of responses. We got responses from people who are already Christians. We got responses from people who are not Christians. And we got a lot of responses from people who are like, you know what, I don't even know what I believe or think. I don't really know where I stand. And these are the kind of conversations, by the way, that we get really excited about here at Whitefields. We love to have these conversations and engage with people about the real things that they're dealing with, that they're thinking about, that they're struggling with when it comes to faith faith and Jesus and Christianity. And my hope, our hope, is that by doing this study, we can remove some of those barriers or those perceived barriers, things that people think are barriers. We want to show you that they're not really barriers and that there's those things that you say, this is the barrier for me coming to faith. We want to help remove some of those so you can wholeheartedly receive the gospel. Just a quick word on the schedule for this series. So far we've looked at three subjects. So far we looked at the Bible. Has it been changed? Can we really trust it? Who would base their life on a, on a really old book anyway? Then we talked about hypocrisy. Some people would say, well, it's not that I don't know any Christians. The fact is that I do know Christians and that's the problem. I don't like them. So we talked about that. How does that work? And, and last week we looked at the issue of science. Does science bury God in the Bible? We talked about that last week. If you missed any of those, you can listen to them all for free on our website whitefieldschurch.com and we have a podcast so for those of you who are podcasters go into your podcast store or whatever you use and and search Whitefields Community Church and you can listen to all those for free we do encourage you to catch up on those and we encourage you to send them to your friends and share them with people because maybe you say hey you know what this isn't an issue for me but I guarantee there's somebody you know for whom it is an issue and so we encourage you to share these on uh, social media and with your friends who might benefit from them. Next week we're going to be talking about the issue of suffering and hell. That's a big one. As a lot of people would say, you know, it's my personal experience, what I've been through. It makes it hard for me to believe in God, some of the things that I've been through. Then finally in the last week, uh, we timed it super good for Mother's Day. We're going to be talking about exclusivity and hell. And then after that, 
we're going to be, so bring your mom, and we'll talk to her about hell. But, hey, it's going to be good, and I, gotta, I promise you, we're going to be talking about the love of God, and it's going to be good. So make sure you're there, and bring your mom. And moms, bring your kids, all right? So that's, uh, and, and then after that, we're going to get into another book study. We're going to be studying the letter to the Romans. So we're really excited about all that's coming up. This week, we're going to be talking about a topic which is of particular interest to me. It's something uh, which many of you may have come across and not known that it had a name, uh, or maybe you haven't come across it, and we want to introduce you just to this idea so you can be conversant. And it's something called the Christ myth. So let me introduce you to this topic by... Uh, taking you back in time with me, okay? Would you join me? Let's go on a little journey. We're going to go back in time in the Wayback Machine. You know, diddly-doo, diddly-doo. We're going to go back in time, and we're going to go back to the magical year, much simpler time, uh, magical year of 2007, okay? 2007, way back in time. 2007, I, uh, I was 23 years old. Uh, I had a beautiful, thick head of hair. You would have really liked it. And uh, my wife, Rosemary, was pregnant with our first child at the time. We were living in Eger, Hungary, and um, my wife and I had moved there two years earlier than that to plant a church, and that's why we were there. And at this time, 2007, at the same time that I'm telling you about, we had just gotten broadband internet hooked up in our flat in Eger. And, and there was this new thing coming around. We weren't sure if it was going to catch on. We thought it was kind of cool. It was called YouTube. We weren't sure if that would ever become a thing. Turns out it did. And there on YouTube, I came across this video. I don't even remember how I came across it, but I came across this video called Zeitgeist. Anybody heard of it? Zeitgeist? A few people? All right. It's basically... A big conspiracy theory. That's what the whole movie is. Like an hour-long conspiracy theory about everything. Everything's a conspiracy. You can't believe anything anybody's ever told you. Everything's a lie. Everybody wants to control you. Don't believe what they said. And we're going to deprogram you. That's actually what they call the video. It's a deprogramming video, right? So overall, I didn't take this movie very seriously. But the first 10 minutes of it, I got to tell you, it made some very interesting claims. And it really messed me up. Like, it really made me ask a lot of questions. So, for example, here are some of the things. These are literal slides from, or stills from, the, from that movie. They said, 3,000 years before Jesus, the Egyptians had a god named Horus. And Horus was born on December 25th. He was born of a virgin. His birth was marked by a star in the east. He was adored by three kings. He was a teacher at age 12. He was baptized and entered into ministry at age 30. There's another slide that I don't have for you, but it says this. He, he was res he was crucified on a cross and he was resurrected and he had 12 disciples and you look at that and you say well that kind of sounds familiar doesn't it well that's not all they keep going they'll be like okay India Krishna 900 years before Jesus born of a virgin on December 25th his birth was accompanied by a star in the east during his life he performed miracles he was resurrected from the dead and then they don't stop they just keep going Mithra Persian God, born on December 25th, born of a virgin, had 12 disciples, performed miracles, was dead for three days and then resurrected, was worshipped on a Sunday. Keep going. Dionysus, the Greek God, born of a virgin on December 25th, performed miracles, called the King of Kings and the Alpha and the Omega, resurrected from the dead. And they say, see, all this stuff the Bible says about Jesus, they just ripped it off, straight up plagiarism. And I got to tell you this, as a 23-year-old new pastor, it shook my faith, I'm going to be honest, because I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know, I had never heard this, I had never encountered this idea before. Since then, I, I've seen it in other places. But it really, I, because here's the thing, I understood the implications. Because if this is true, then Christianity is just a myth. It's all made up. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to believe in something that's just made up. That somebody just got together and said, hey, why don't we create a religion, because that'll be fun. Yeah, so that very week, you know, week by week, I'm standing up in front of a group of people at this church that we had planted, and I'm teaching them from this book 
about this person named Jesus, and now I'm wondering, well, if what this video says is true, then I've only got really two options. Either I continue teaching these things, which might just be nothing more than myths and fairy tales that somebody, about somebody who never actually existed, or maybe the other option is I need to just quit being a pastor because I don't know if I can go on teaching this in good conscience, right? Or maybe I need to just go find something else to do with my life, be like a bricklayer or a tile worker or something like that, where I don't have to worry about it. And at that point, you know, our church was actually doing really well. We were starting to get traction, but I was having doubts myself. And so there I am standing up on Sunday morning, and I've got all this stuff running through my head. And I'm wondering if I can even continue doing this in good conscience. And right at that time, we had a six-week trip planned to the U.S. So we were coming back to, to visit friends and family and all that. And that trip really couldn't have come at a better time, I felt, because I felt like I got to get this worked out. Like, I need to figure some stuff out. First of all, I need to figure out, is Christianity even true? And secondly, I need to figure out, am I going to keep being a pastor or do I need to actually resign and do something else with my life? And so during these six weeks, we, we spent most of our time in California and we were staying at, these people had like this pool house. And so I just sat in this pool house in Southern California and I did a lot of reading and a lot of praying. And here's what I discovered as a result. What I discovered is that this Christ myth it's, it's not even a thing. Like, it's not even true, first of all. But the other thing is that a lot of these claims, first of all, they're not accurate. And what they're doing is they're twisting things. They're trying to make it appear as if something's there, which is really not. And the other thing is that as I read and as I discovered this, I became more and more confident in the validity of the Bible and what it says about Jesus. And my faith was actually strengthened. And as a result of this, here's the other thing that happened. I decided... I'm going to go to seminary. And I did. I started seminary a few months after that. I said, I'm going to go to seminary. And here's why. Because I really want to know the foundations of this stuff. The Bible, history. I, I want to know everything I can know about Christianity. Because I want to know, is it really true? Because I don't know about you guys, but again, I don't want to believe in something that's just made up. And here's the thing about Christianity. It doesn't claim to be just some esoteric, abstract truth. It actually claims to be the true story of the world. And I want to know, is it actually does it stand up to scrutiny? And what about all these things that people say about Christianity, like all this stuff we just looked at? I want to know how to actually respond to that with some real knowledge, not just some answers that somebody gave me. And so in the end, God used this in an incredibly good way in my life. And I'm, I'm thankful for it. But when I first encountered it, it really shook my faith and it threw me. And so today I want to look at this subject with you. Some of you, maybe you have encountered this before in different forms. You didn't know it had a name. Or maybe you haven't encountered it before and you're like, well, I don't know why I need to think about this then. Here's why you need to think about it. First Peter tells us this. In First Peter, Peter says this, you need to always be ready. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that you have in Jesus. And, and this is a view which is actually held by a great number of atheists and agnostics about Jesus. It's been popularized in a lot of books and movies. And I want to help you so that you can be conversant, so you can engage in conversation and help other people see that Christianity isn't about faith in spite of the facts. Christianity is about faith because of facts. That it actually stands up to scrutiny, that there's proof that that supports it because it's true. So to give you some perspective on how widespread this is, the number one best-selling book in 2004 in Canada, I realize they're, they're a little different, but uh, Canada in 2004, number one best-selling book, was a book called The Pagan Christ, which is a book about this stuff I just showed you. Movies like Bill Maher's movie, Re Religious, and The God Who Wasn't There, promote this idea of the Christ myth. It's basically the biggest conspiracy theory in the history of the world. It's the, this conspiracy theory that Jesus never existed, that the early Christians got together and they made him up by borrowing stories and material from existing uh, legends and myths so that they could control people and take their money. 
right? Because that's why people do religion, right? But people love a good conspiracy theory, don't they? Like, people love this stuff. Like, if you go on YouTube, there are one or two conspiracy theories, right? Like, JFK was assassinated by the government or by the military, and Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy. And I'm sure that some of you are like, yeah, I totally believe that, right? And, so, and there's a UFO landed in Roswell, New Mexico. That was a big one. I was just down in Roswell and um, read all this stuff on it. A 9-11 was, was organized by the government. There were actually, the planes didn't do anything. It was all they had, they had rigged those buildings with bombs so that they could justify going to war so they could get some oil and, and spread their, you know, uh, capitalist ideas all over the world. You know, oh, here's another big one, that we've never actually been to the moon, right? That the moon landing didn't actually happen. It was filmed in a studio in Southern California by Stanley Kubrick and then he felt so guilty about it that when he made the movie The Shining he actually hid a confession in there and if you watch really closely you can figure out that Stanley Kubrick through The Shining is actually confessing that he filmed the moon landing in a soundstage in, in Southern California. Right? And so that's a big one. Another very popular one these days is this idea, believe it or not, that the earth is flat. This is like really picking up steam. I'm not even kidding. Just go on YouTube and watch these videos. There's a whole bunch of them that the earth is actually shaped like an upside down frisbee and that's why you can't fall off the end of it because it's surrounded by the polar caps and the government just wants you to think that it's round because the government wants to control you and they're lying to you and they don't want you to know the truth. So how do you respond to this stuff? Like how do you respond to these conspiracy theories? Well, it's not as much fun to do, but you actually have to push pause on the video and actually look into the facts. That's what you have to do. And you have to do this with these things about the Christ myth as well. So. First question, how do we know that Jesus actually existed? Now, first of all, here's what you need to know. There are no real historians who don't believe Jesus existed. Like, no legit historian believes this. On the level of conspiracy theories, uh, believing that Jesus never existed is on the same level as believing that the earth is flat, okay? Here's a quote. Edwin uh, Yamuchi, professor of history at the University of Miami, he says this, any argument that challenges the claim of a historical Jesus is so ridiculous in the scholarly community it is relegated only to the world of footnotes. Several reasons for this. Number one, historians tell us there are at least 10 ancient sources. Now in the ancient world, 10 is a lot because they didn't write as much then as we do now. Other than the Bible that talk about Jesus as a historical person. So these are not Christian people. These are first century historians and uh, Roman officials. People like Tacitus, the Roman historian, Pliny the Elder, Roman statesman. Here's, here's some quotes. Tacitus from his annals. Uh, this is history. Um, Roman history. He says, Nero fastened the guilt. This is a guilt for a fire that took place in Rome that burned down a lot of the city. He fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom they had their origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius the, at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Here's Josephus. He's a Jewish historian, and here's what he wrote about Jesus. Again, he's not a Christian either. He says, about this time there lived Jesus. He was a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. And when Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to him to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. There's a historian named 
Bart Ehrman, and he says this. He's University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Here's what he says. He's not a Christian, by the way. He says this. There's more evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ than for nearly any other figure from antiquity. And here's what he says about the Christ myth. He says, mythicists as a group and as individuals are not taken seriously by the vast majority of scholars. The idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedence. It was made up in the 18th century. One might call it a modern myth, the myth of the mythical Jesus. The second reason we can be sure that Jesus really existed is because of the rise of the early church. There's no explanation for it if Jesus didn't actually exist. Here you have a movement of people, and here's what they said. They said, Jesus was an actual person, who lived, who taught, who died, who resurrected. We saw him with our own eyes. And as a result, what happened to these people? Did they get rich and famous? Did they get book deals? Did they get invited on talk shows and paid a lot of money? And they got a lot of control over people? Not at all. They got persecuted and killed. They got thrown into gladiatorial arenas. They got ripped apart by lions. Families lost fathers and mothers as a result of this claim. If they made this up to benefit themselves, it super backfired. Like, Dang it, right? Like that was not what we expected to happen. And yet, all they had to do to make this stop, they could have made it stop. All they had to do was say, okay, 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 we just made it up. And yet none of them did that, did they? Hundreds and thousands of people were persecuted even unto death for this claim that Jesus did the things that he did, that they saw it with their own eyes, and yet they never recanted this story. Now think about it. If a group of people got together and make something up, Nobody's going to die for something that they themselves made up. Like you might die for a lie that you believe that somebody told you. But you're not going to die for something that you actually made up yourself. The minute they start setting you on fire or they rip out your fingernails or they kill your children or they saw your body in half, you kind of start going, all right, all right, all right, all right. This has gone way too far. That's enough. But none of these people did that. And so history looks back and they say, there's really no other explanation for this, for the behavior of these people and their conviction if they didn't actually see their leader crucified and then rise again. And in spite of all this persecution, crazy thing happened with Christianity. In spite of the fact that it was called an illicit religion, it was an illegal religion, it grew in crazy ways to the point where 50% of the Roman Empire was Christian by the end of the third century. You realize that that's like a huge growth at a time when to be a Christian often meant to be persecuted. And for that reason, people looked at these Christians and they said, wow, there really must be something behind this because these people are willing to live and to die for this thing. The early Christians, here's one of the things they would do. They would go and they would take care of the poor and the sick. And oftentimes they would contract diseases by being around sick people. See, they would often quarantine sick people, make them live separately outside of town, and just kind of wait for them to die on their own. The Christians would go out there and take care of them, even though they knew they are going to contract the disease, and they would sometimes die. Now, why did they do that? Here's why. Because they were not afraid of death. Why weren't they afraid of death? Because they didn't just make this up. They saw their leader die and then rise from the grave and say, this is what's going to happen to you too. Right? This wasn't just some fanciful story that they invented. They saw Jesus. They heard his teachings. They saw him get crucified and rise from the dead. And it had an incredible impact on them. It changed their whole lives. The rise of the early church makes no sense at all if Jesus never actually existed and his followers just made it all up. Now let's examine some of the claims of the Christ myth. I'll just give you two quick problems with the Christ myth, and then we'll do a deep dive on one or two of these, okay? So problems with the Christ myth. Number one, lack of primary sources. 
If you look at their footnotes with the, the thing, they're counting on you not actually reading their footnotes. If you read the footnotes, they'll see that they're all just quoting each other, and they all really go back to one guy who made some claims which are not accepted by the scholarly community because they're not based on primary sources. In other words, they didn't go to like Egypt and read the hieroglyphics. They didn't study ancient cultures. They just uh, got some ideas. So it'd be kind of like this. If you had a paper that was due for school, and your paper was, write a research paper on Romeo and Juliet. But you said, you know what? I don't want to take the time to actually read Romeo and Juliet. I'm just going to go off of what I think it's about. And so you'd write a book. You'd probably get a lot of stuff that was not accurate. You might get some stuff that you inherently know, but some of it's not going to be accurate. And that's basically what we have here with the Christ myth. They're not going off of primary sources. And so scholars look at this, Egyptologists and, and the like, they look at this and they say, actually we study that stuff and that's not what it says about Horus and, and Mithra and the like. That's not even accurate. Number two, they get basic facts about the Bible wrong. Like they're saying, hey, Christians think this and we're Christians and we're like, no, we don't actually think that. Like that's not even in the Bible, bro. And so that's not even a parallel. Okay, so let's, I'm going to give you some examples of those. Let's look at Horus, okay, because we talked about him in the beginning. Horus is the most popular of these ancient ancient gods that people say is a parallel to Jesus, and the Christians ripped off this idea and said it was Jesus. Okay, here, let's just go through line by line. Born on December 25th. Now, I don't want to ruin your Christmas, but I'm gonna, okay? Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. You're like, what? Then why did I have that birthday cake for Jesus? I don't know. I mean, that was just your thing. That's not in the Bible either, okay? So you don't need to do that anymore. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus was born on December 25th. That's not a thing. It's not in the Bible, okay? So we don't actually know what day Jesus was born on. He could have been born on July 4th for all we know. Here's what we do know. It probably wasn't in the winter. And here's how we know it wasn't in the winter because it says in the Gospels that there were shepherds sleeping in the fields overnight. And guess what? In Israel, it gets cold in the winter. It's a deserty climate. And you don't, no one sleeps outside in the middle of the winter. So Everybody who reads the Bible, like historians and scholars and stuff, they say, well, this must have happened not in winter. Might have happened in spring, summer, fall, but it definitely didn't happen in winter. So where do we get this idea of December 25th? Okay, here's the thing. It's like 396 or so. It's just right before 400 AD. The Pope, Julius I, changed the day when Christians celebrated the birth of Jesus. And he changed it to December 25th, which, by the way, is the winter solstice. It's the shortest day of the year. Why did he do that? Here's why. And you think, oh, this is a big conspiracy. It really wasn't that big of a conspiracy. Here's what he wanted to do. There was a pagan holiday called Saturnalia that was celebrated on that day and he wanted to subvert it and basically get rid of it and re he said well let's just celebrate the birth of Jesus on that day since we don't know when Jesus was born anyway we can choose that day we'll celebrate his birth and anyway Christians have never believed that Jesus was actually born on December 25th that's just the day when we choose to celebrate it if you want to celebrate in August or tomorrow go for it because we don't know the day that he was actually born so again December 25th, that's not even a parallel, okay? Next, born of a virgin. Here's how Horace was conceived. This is going to be PG-13, so some of you might need to cover your ears, okay? His mom was a goddess named Isis, and his dad was a god named Osiris. And here's what happened. Osiris got in a fight with this other god, and he lost, which is... I mean, that's obviously a bummer. The other god, here's what he did. He took Osiris and he cut him up into pieces. He chopped him up into a bunch of pieces. And then Isis came along and found his body chopped up into pieces. And she went and found his uh, severed phallus and yada, yada, yada. She got pregnant 
and that's how Horus was conceived. Now, I don't know what world you live in, but I don't think that counts as a virgin conception. And it's, it's certainly not a, a parallel to Jesus, okay? Not even close. Okay, next, star in the east attended by three kings. Again, I'm going to ruin your Christmas, and you're going to, you know, you have the nativity set, and you got the, the shepherds on one side and the three kings on the other side, and they're each holding a little box. Sorry, but that's just not, not what the Bible says, again. So, okay, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus' birth was attended by three kings who followed a star from the east. Here's what it does say. The only people who were actually present at Jesus' birth were the shepherds who were in the surrounding fields, and they came in, and they saw Jesus right after he was born. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read about a group called the Magi, who come from the east, probably from Persia, and they come not when Jesus is born. They come when he's about two years old. He now lives in a house. He's no longer—he didn't stay in that barn, right? Like, he, they got an apartment, and he moved into the house, and Jesus is now two years old. The word they use there is they said they came to see the infant. Okay, he's not a, not a newborn anymore. And nowhere does it say that they were kings. Like, they weren't kings. I know that we like to dress up Johnny as a king and get out there, Johnny, I'm a king. I'm here to see Jesus. That's just not in the Bible. So Magi, what were they? Magi are Zoroastrian priests. Okay, Zoroastrianism is the religion of Persia, ancient Persia, Iran, and they were Zoroastrian priests. That's what they were. That's a whole different story, but the point is they were not kings. Nowhere does it say either that there were three of them. We just were so brilliant. We said, well, they had three gifts. There must have been three of them because one of them's got to carry each gift. There might have been two of them. One of them carried two things. There might have been 20 of them, and they had somebody else carry their stuff for them. We don't even know how much stuff they brought. Probably there, there was 15, 20, maybe even 100 of them. We don't know. So again, this isn't in the Bible. This is not a parallel. Okay, next. Furthermore, uh, teaching at age 12 and baptized at 30. There are literally zero references to this in any ancient documents about Horus. So again, this is really just kind of trying to pin things on a board with no references and, and convince you that it's a conspiracy. Next, 12 disciples. Actually, Horus did have disciples, but he didn't have 12. Hieroglyphics clearly show Horus had four disciples, and here's the best part. They were a turtle, a bear, a lion, and a tiger. Oh my. And so it's not even on the slide, but here are some other ones. People say that Horus was crucified, and then he got resurrected on the third day. Just newsflash, guess what? Crucifixion didn't exist in Egypt. It didn't exist for another 3,000 years. It was invented by the Romans. Okay, so that is clearly uh, what we call an anachronism, which means it was something which didn't exist at the time. You're trying to apply something from a future time to something in the past, okay? That's, that's not right. In most stories, though, Horus didn't even die, but in the one story where he did die, here's what happened. He got killed by another god, and then he got cut up into pieces. This apparently was something that happened a lot, and then he got thrown into a swamp, and then he turned into a crocodile. So I don't think that's a resurrection. Like, that doesn't count. Okay, Mithra. We've already talked about December 25th, but born of a virgin. Here's how Mithra was born. Fully formed out of a rock. That's not exactly a virgin birth either. And again, these are just the kind of dumb parallels that, are, that when you actually look into this, this is what they're talking about. Another resurrection parallel, they say, hey, that whole Jesus resurrection thing, that was taken from, from ancient myths. Here's one. I don't have a slide for it, but it's this Greek god called Attis. And you'll hear about this if you read any of this stuff. When you look into history, here's how the story of Attis goes. Attis was killed by his father. And then his father was like, 
I shouldn't have killed my son. I wish he was alive. So Addis' father goes to Zeus and says, hey, Zeus, can you resurrect my son? And Zeus is like, what's that? I don't even know what that is. Like, uh, we don't do that around here. And he says, well, here's what I'll do for you. I will make Addis's pinky finger wiggle for eternity, and his hair will never stop growing. And they say, look, that's a resurrection, just like Jesus. Not at all like Jesus, like not at all, okay? So here's the thing about these parallels. Even if there are parallels, people sometimes try to make parallels mean something that they don't necessarily mean. Let me give you an example. Think about Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, okay? There's some parallels between these guys. So maybe we should conclude that one of them didn't actually exist. Okay, let's think about this. They were both U.S. presidents. Both were assassinated on a Friday, which preceded a major holiday on the Monday, Okay, Lincoln was shot in box seven of a theater. Kennedy was shot in car seven of a motorcade. Their successors both had the last name of Johnson. Both assassins were arrested by a police officer with the last name Baker. Now check this one, this is my favorite one. Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater. Kennedy was shot in a car. And the model of the car was a Lincoln. If this wasn't an expensive microphone, I'd totally drop it on the ground. All right, so, so many parallels, right? Therefore, John F. Kennedy didn't exist. He was invented by the followers of Abraham Lincoln. No. In other words, just because there are parallels doesn't mean they mean what you think they mean. You can't read too much into parallels. And this leads us to our final point, which is this. If there are parallels between Jesus and other ancient stories, the Bible tells us why that would be. And it actually brings us back to the text we began at the beginning, which we're going to look at again. And this is, get to my last point, which I call the true myth. That's a phrase I got from C.S. Lewis. He refers to the gospel as the true myth. Okay, let's talk about that. In Romans chapter 2, Paul the Apostle says that God has written his law onto the hearts of all people. And that is why all people have this built-in sense of right and wrong, like we talked about last week. But beyond that... There are also things which are common to all human cultures, right? Like, so if you look at different cultures, there are certain values that all people share. There are certain hopes, certain desires, certain recurring themes in the stories that we tell in all different religions or traditions or legends. And the Bible actually tells us why that is. So our text this morning was Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. Let me give you some background on this text. Colossians is a letter which Paul the Apostle wrote to the Christians in the region of the Roman Empire called this region called Colossae. And he was writing to them because there was a teaching which was very popular in the Roman Empire at this time, which is actually very similar to, to something in our day and age. And it was causing a lot of confusion for the Christians as they were hearing about this and like grappling with it. And the teaching essentially said this, no one religion has all the truth. No one religion has all the truth. All religions basically teach the same thing. And, you know, you should really kind of just take best practices out of all of them, and then you'll be closer to the truth. And so the Roman Empire was a multicultural, multi-ethnic society, very much like our society in America today. And one of the prevailing philosophies in the Roman Empire was that in order for there to be unity, in order for everybody to get along in a mixed society, then you could have your traditions but don't ever say that your traditions or your religion or your belief are any better or any more true than anybody else's. You can't say that because we, we're all doing this together. We all got to affirm each other. In other words, you can believe whatever you want, but do not ever say that what you believe is true or the right way. 
And for this reason, Christianity was absolutely scandalous in the Roman Empire. And it's scandalous in our society too. Because in the midst of a society that says you cannot make exclusive claims, Jesus comes in and he does exactly that. He says, I am the only way. I am the only life. I, no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus says there are two paths in life. One that leads to eternal life and one that leads to eternal death. And in order to get on the path that leads to life, you have to come through me. He said that God sent him and that whoever believes in him would be saved and whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. That's a scandalous thing to say and especially in a society where, like in many societies around the world today, religion was considered something that you don't choose for yourself. It's just something you're born into, right? So if you're born into a Jewish family, you're Jewish. If you're born into a Greek family, you follow the Greek religion. It's still how many people think today, right? Like, hey, you're born into an Arab family, you're Muslim. Indian, you're Hindu. Irish, Hispanic, you are Catholic. But Jesus comes along and he teaches something different. He says, there's one race. You know that, right? There's only one race, the human race. And God has sent one Savior for all people. And all people need to come to Jesus and embrace what he did for them and receive this new life and forgiveness and a relationship with their creator through him. Furthermore, unlike other religions, Christianity was not a tradition. It was based on historical events which had taken place just a few years before this, where there were thousands of eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus of Nazareth resurrect from the dead. So in other words, Christianity wasn't just an opinion or a matter of perspective. It was a question of did these things happen or did they not happen? And the weight of evidence, as we've been looking at in this series, is that they actually did happen. Now some people then ask the question, well then why are there similarities? Why are there commonalities between different religions? If Jesus is the one true way, then, then why are there similarities and commonalities between different religions and, and what they teach and what they espouse? Colossians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle gives us the answer to that question. Here's what he says, two things, and then we're done. Number one, the reason for the common threads. And number two, what makes the gospel unique? The reason for the common threads and what makes the gospel unique. Okay, the reason for the common threads. The reason there are some common threads between Christianity and other religions. Paul says here in this text, he says, it's because, look, whether it's pagans celebrating new moon festivals or it's the Jewish people practicing the Sabbath, all of these things are just shadows of what is to come, but the substance is in Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, what that means for us is this, that the ancient myths... The symbols, the festivals, they were all reflections of deep human desires and fundamental virtues that are built into all people in all places throughout history. There are stories that we tell and they have recurring themes. Why is that? Because they point to the deep longings, the ultimate hope, which is the substance of which is Jesus himself. They were shadows. Jesus is the substance. Let me tell you a quick story. C.S. Lewis, he was a committed atheist. But he also loved literature and stories and he was obsessed with ancient myths and legends and the stories that cultures tell. And he became a professor of literature at Oxford University. And it was there that he met another professor who taught in the same department but had more seniority than he did. That man's name was J.R.R. Tolkien. Maybe you've heard his name before, like the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a committed Christian. And the two of them shared this love for literature and mythology, and they shared a fascination with stories. And so one night, Tolkien and Lewis had gone out to dinner with some friends. And, and after dinner, they went for a walk along the River Cherwell in Oxford. And they got to talking about these stories that people tell in different cultures. And they said, you know, if you think about it, all the greatest stories, the greatest, uh, you know, the, the, for us, the books we read, the movies we watch, the ones that bring tears to your eyes, they all have the same common themes, 
good, overcoming evil, heroic acts of self-sacrifice that save a person or, or a group of people, supernatural worlds, right, where you can overcome the limitations of the physical body, being able to escape death and aging and time and victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. And C.S. Lewis said, these are the things that, that grab people's hearts, but if I look at reality, I don't, I don't see these things. In reality, I see that, that a lot of times good doesn't win, and no matter how much you want it to, love always ends, either through death or through other things. So we, we have this feeling that this is how things should be, even though it's not how they are. And Tolkien said something which C.S. Lewis said, that's, that was it. That's what led him to embrace Christianity. He said, here's what, here's what I want you to notice. All those desires, all those stories, they're found in full measure in the gospel story of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, you have a heroic act of self-sacrifice in which good overcomes evil. And as a result, you can overcome aging and time and even death itself. You can experience love that lasts forever. And he says, don't you understand? The gospel is the underlying story to which all the other stories point. And it's written on the hearts of every person because we were made by God with this, and we have this lingering memory of the way that things should be, even if it's not how they are now. And so in every generation, every culture, people tell these same similar stories because this is written onto our hearts. There's this underlying reality to which all the stories point, and the substance is Jesus. And C.S. Lewis said this realization is what led him to embrace Christianity and, and believe the gospel. He referred to the gospel as the true myth, that all other myths were just a shadow of it. In other words, the existence of similar themes in other religions isn't a problem for Christianity. Rather, it's a proof. It just makes sense. Of course it is. Because we have this written on our hearts, of course people would tell stories that have those same themes. Now let's talk, though, finally about what makes the gospel unique. Earlier in the same chapter, in chapter 2, Paul makes it very clear that what the gospel says, what makes Christianity unique, he says in verse 13, he says, You who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set them aside and nailed it to the cross. So this is what sets the gospel apart from every tradition, every myth, every religion, every philosophy. Whereas every religion in the world would say, here's what you need to do in order for God to accept you. Here's the list. Do it and, and then God will accept you. The message of the gospel is you could never save yourself. But the good news, the astounding news, the incredible news is that God loves you so much that he did it for you at incredible cost to himself. He took your sins. He took judgment upon himself so that you could be forgiven, so you could be justified, so you could be set free. He did it all. It was all him. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can deserve. It's a free gift of his grace. And your part in it is to receive it by faith, to embrace Jesus and what he did for you. So my hope is that as we look at these things, that you will walk away today having more confidence in the fact of what Jesus did for you, the fact that he existed, that he did die, that he rose again, and that what the Bible says is true. The early Christians, what they said about the Bible is they said the Bible is the face of God for us today. In other words, when we open this book and we read it, we are encountering God face to face. We are hearing his voice. And I want to encourage you to do that with all confidence that what you read in here is truly the word of God. My hope for you today is that you will embrace the gospel wholeheartedly, knowing that not only is it true, but it's true for you today. Amen? Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have confidence that your word stands up to scrutiny. Uh, because, Lord, it's true. 
And I pray for everyone here today, Lord, if there's anyone who's been struggling with doubts, Lord, I pray that you would remove those doubts, Lord, that you would show them, take them on a journey of showing them that these things are true and they stand up to scrutiny. And thank you as we praise you now with this last song, we can do so in confidence that this isn't something that, that was just made up. It's not something that uh, is fake or a fairy tale, but truly as we worship you, we are worshiping the true and living God who has acted in history to save us. May we receive the gospel today in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.